This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here with Dr. Bill Nance. Hello. And our special guest today is Dr. Martin Clemens. Hello. And we are going to talk about the U.S. kind of um, nation building is a fraught term, but nation building efforts in South Vietnam, uh, what becomes the, the southern half of the country of Vietnam. Uh, so let's start at the very beginning. Uh, the, the French Indochina War ends in 1954. The French assume that they've kind of washed their hands of it. You're going to have an independent Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam uh, referendum to come to unify Vietnam. The presumed winner is going to be Ho Chi Minh, who's kind of the, the George Washington of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So it's 1954. We're waiting for this election to happen. What's the U.S. doing during the end of this French decolonization war. Okay, well, uh, U.S. gets involved really uh, in the war in Indochina 1950 simply for the fact that uh, in an effort to try to retain some kind of leverage in the region, uh, the French uh, and uh, the last Vietnamese emperor, this guy named Bao Dai, signed something called the uh, Alisi Agreement or the Bao Dai Agreement in which they set up this ostensibly free state of Vietnam, SVN. And this is the thing that really kind of greenlights uh, uh, the United States to now actually start giving aid to France in their fight against Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh. Because um, it, it was believed that this state of Vietnam was now a sovereign, legitimate, anti-communist Vietnamese state, uh, and we were going to na- naturally uh, give it aid in the fight, the larger fight, to, to help in the larger fight against the Cold War. Uh, so we initially give um, the French aid. Uh, there's a very contentious relationship between the United States and the French during this period, and then ultimately Xi'an Ben Phu happens in 1954. Uh, it's a very decisive battle, yet, however, it's by no means settles the issue one way or the other. It's the war had remained essentially stalemate almost from the get-go, in which the French tend to be strong uh, in kind of urban areas. Uh, the Viet Minh were able to build their movement in the countryside, uh, and there was a relative equilibrium. Neither could really, you know, the, the Viet Minh could not overthrow the French, and the French could not destroy the Viet Minh kind of insurgency, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it was, remains this kind of equilibrium. So in 1950, the Truman administration now sees this as a, a green light to try to give aid, to hopefully tip the balance of forces towards the French. However, it does not. But essentially, this breaks uh, France's political will. It's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. They leave, um, and then by ni- so as part of the Geneva Accords, you now have uh, by 1955 two sovereign Vietnamese states. The original agreement was supposed to be that um, there was going to be regroupment, meaning because this is a war without fronts, and you had Vietnamese fighting alongside the French against other Vietnamese with uh, Ho Chi Minh, the Viet Minh, the Vietnamese Communists, and their front organization. Uh, it was essentially a way to separate the combatants in a war without fronts. They go back to their respective corners. 
and then they were supposed to have elections two years later to reunify the country through plebiscite or whatever. Um, those elections never happen. Uh, the year afterwards, uh, the prime minister, I believe, uh, for Baodai, points this guy as head of state, nodes in Ziem. Uh, he holds his own fraudulent uh, election, declares himself president of now a sovereign anti-communist state south of the 17th parallel. So by 1955, you have two uh, uh, Vietnamese states, each claiming sovereignty, each claiming, you know, kind of their, their own claim to the entire country, and it sets up the state. So let's take the We'll, we'll we'll say South Vietnamese government, although one could say that they they weren't that to start with. <clears throat> but let's go back to Bao Dai working under the French. What did the Vietnamese side of that government look like? I mean, was this just a bunch of like one Vietnamese face amongst a French bureaucracy? Was this a full Vietnamese-led bureaucracy? Was there something in between? What did it look like during the French and kind of leading up through this transition period? Right. It, it was really, it, it was a fiction. I mean, essentially, the Vietnamese don't have much, even administrative control over their own state. Uh, the French administrators, going back to, the, you know, the heyday of French colonialism, uh, they really run the show. It's there for their own benefit. Um, they are. They do have some degree of uh, Vietnamese uh, kind of civil servants who work within the system, and this goes back to even Vietnamese nationalists. You had kind of two strains. You had the more uh, militant wing who was looking for immediate, um, you know, independence from the French, uh, more kind of radical approach to doing this. But then you also had those who felt that the best way to achieve Vietnamese independence would be to work within the system, and that goes back from the early 20th century. So it's almost like an Atlanta Compromise idea. Uh, yeah, well, essentially, yeah. But this this idea of administrative, and that's part of uh, what colonialism did, uh, is that it kind of retarded or held back, if you will, the kind of natural development of talent within these countries. Right. So there's no really sound uh, civil servants uh, within Vietnam. It's really a state that that needs a helping hand due to the fact of a kind of the paternalistic control of or role of imperialism. Yeah, and I can I can you know I'm not an expert in French colonialism, but I have read a fair amount about it as a French historian in general. And and the French always claim they're doing this civilizing mission, right. but the reality is they're they're essentially sponging off their colonies. Yes. They bring in people from the metropole to run things. They as you say, they don't develop local talent, they don't do much for the local population, and they're just drawing off resources. Essentially, yes, that that's it. So then when you do have the state of Vietnam, they're really they're in no position to stand up independently on their own. And that's what will send the United States now to help them do this, right? Because well, it's also worth pointing out kind of as background there are problems within Laos and Cambodia, but not mm. like this. Yeah. And the administrative center is in the north. We tend to forget the French colonial capital is in Hanoi. Right. Saigon is kind of like the Vegas of Indochina. It's not an administrative capital. Right. So like you said, there's there's not even a native really bureaucracy to draw on, the native French. Right, right. And the, and the south is the, the, the least settled area, right? Because they migrated from north to south, much like in the United States. Uh, so you didn't have a lot of local development. And plus due to the long duration it took for the Vietnamese to migrate all the way down to the Mekong Delta from the Red River Delta. Um, you almost had two different cultures like is in the United States in the in the antebellum period right before the Civil War. Northerners and Southerners did not look at each other as if they almost came from the same kind of so, or, or occupied the same country. They had very different views on life and uh, how to live it. So then let's take this a step further. So 
Geneva Accords happen, and mm -hmm. if I remember right, there's actually a population exchange agreed to where uh, the the non-communists are going to go to the south, and right. the communists are going to kind of head to the north. Right. So, obviously, the French are leaving. Right. So that, uh, by your description, that's most of the people that have been keeping the lights on, so to speak. Yes. So, what does the government of Baudai look like besides him and Ziem? Okay, well, he's really a weak leader. He does, he, he, I mean, when he was, as the last emperor and under French colonialism, he was essentially a playboy, right? The, the French kept him in power. He was a figurehead, but he liked to spend his time uh, on gambling and, 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 and women and cars and all kinds of stuff. He lived essentially like a playboy life, if you will. And he ends up living his life in exile in the south of France. Essentially, yes. Yeah. And one of the reasons why Ziem stands up is because, although Ho Chi Minh is often looked at as like, you know, the, the, the poster boy, if you will, or the face of Vietnamese nationalism, he was only one form of Vietnamese nationalism. Ho, uh, or, uh, no Zin Ziem was also a, 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 a very well-known nationalist um, who left temporarily, uh, you know, in the 20th century and came to the United States and other places, uh, mid-20th century, but then later on returned to Vietnam as well. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's also, he's, he's Catholic from correctly, right? Yes, yes. He's Catholic in a largely Buddhist nation. Um, but yeah, he is kind of like the natural guy to take control because he's one of the most well-known uh, nationalists at the time. So what does he have to work with as, the, as first the okay. prime minister and yeah. then the... The president. The yeah, president. Right, well, right. The, the president will put in air quotes there. Uh, but the, <laughs> right. but what does he have to work with in terms of bureaucracy and administration? Right. It sounds like there isn't much. Not much, no. Because the the thing is, there's no real. I mean, ninety percent of the population lives in the countryside, rural areas, and most of the French activity and the buildup of administrative and civil institutions takes place in the cities and the kind of urban centers. So there's really not much going there. Uh, uh, he he also inherits a a national an army, uh, which eventually becomes Arvin, but the army of Vietnam, the, the, the Vietnamese National Army, the VNA, um, who were not very good, right? I mean, they fought alongside the French, but the French really kind of, uh, you know, were, were in command. They led with operations and all that stuff. Uh, this was just essentially their kind of guns for, not guns for hire, but they were not, they didn't develop their own kind of natural military ability due to French paternalism again. Yeah, which is not uncommon in French colonies. Um, so I'll, I'll ask the question that, that recurs again and again, especially in the early Cold War. Uh, these are former French colonies. They're in a part of the world the United States in the 1950s has no view of, right? There's no, There are very few Vietnamese, Cambodians, Laotians in America at the time. Yes. So why does the United States care? Why not just let the chips fall where they will? Um, it really boils down to the contours of the Cold War. Ziem is a fervent anti-communist, uh, as I said, when he spent time outside of Vietnam. Um, and part of his frustration is that he was uh, he, he tried working with the French uh, uh, under the French colonial administration, but he was look, constantly pushing for reforms, and they promised him they would f reform. But when those reforms weren't forthcoming, he simply just split. And one of the places that he, he went to was the United States, and there he formed a lot of... Um, close relationships with cold warriors, right? Anti-communists such as Kennedy, Cardinal Spellman, and others, uh, Mike Mansfield. Uh, so he was cultivating uh, kind of uh, close friendships with, you know, you know, vehement anti-communists here in the United States. Those who viewed the Soviet Union as, uh, you know, and communism writ large as a kind of a, as a threat to the United States and its national security interests. Uh, so that was part of it. He he, he cultivated those those relationships. 
Uh, and then that's one of the reasons why the United States believed that he was their guy. Um, initially, I mean, this even started, you know, it started really uh, in earnest under the uh, Eisenhower administration, where they were calling him, you know, like, he's our guy, he's really the guy we got to go with. And even though there were some reservations because he was Catholic and a largely Buddhist nation, um, he also was... Also unmarried, if I remember correctly. Unmarried, he's a bachelor, he's an awkward guy who used to like to hold, you know, he would talk at you, not to you, he yeah. would hold these kind of great sermons. Uh, really, the only person that genuinely liked him was uh, Edward Lansdale. Uh, other people did not, um, but really for the United States, he was the only guy we kind of had, and that's yeah. why they kept him in office even after he became increasingly unpopular here in the United States, and there were issues over in South Vietnam as well that we go with him. So, so let's kind of pull on that army thread. You yeah. talked about it a little bit. French officer, I'm assuming mm -hmm. French-led logistically. Yes. Was there a... So then, really, was there any sort of military infrastructure that they had, or was it a bunch of guys with rifles calling themselves the Army of Vietnam? Okay, well, there was some. I mean, when the, part of the United States, when it first starts giving aid in 1950, is largely military aid. And that includes an advisory effort as well, too. Um, it become, it was uh, the uh, Military Assistance Advisory Group Indochina, and then it became Military Assistance Advisory Group Vietnam. So they do had some kind of formal training uh, that the United States was giving them before France kind of completely leaves. But is, is this predominantly tactical training then, like uh, uh, fix much. and flank, that uh, kind of thing? Uh, pretty much. And it's not until later on that, in fact, you do start trying to develop you know, true kind of military leadership by sending Vietnamese officers here to the States for training and education, including here at Leavenworth. Like, what does their logistics train look like? Um, that's a good question. I don't know much about it. Um, really, I mean, you know, when, when France leaves, the thing with, it, it's, it's in pretty, all I know is that it's in pretty sad shape because when France leaves, they take all their good equipment, all the good weapons, all their weapons, all the equipment, they kind of split with all that stuff. So the United States is now trying to give them that equipment and get them rapidly caught up, you know, to speed on it as well, too. You said something very important about the, the contour of all of the Indochina wars from 1941 through 1979, which is their wars without fronts. Yes. So... What is an American, let's say, captain who's an advisor in Vietnam, what is he teaching a soldier in what will become Arvin about fighting a war that he himself has never fought in? Well, part of the, the, the problem that we had there, well, initially early on, the early advisory stage was um, Green Berets and Special Forces who were training most largely montagnards who were kind of ethnic they were they were ethnic minorities who lived in the western mountainous regions of south vietnam south vietnam called that's why they were called mountain or mountain people mountain people yeah. essentially and this is actually even before the formal establishment of the special forces at this point right even when the oss goes in during world war ii we're trying to training them in kind of guerrilla tactics and then later on it's anti-guerrilla kind of tactics but when it comes to the vietnamese national army the vietnam we're training them then, once we get involved in it, in a very mirror image format, to fight a conventional fight. Because that's the idea, is that if, if the real threat, at least early on, was always looked at as North Vietnam is the major issue. And we have to have, because by that time, the Viet Minh were a formidable kind of conventional force. Yes, light infantry, right? And they don't do a lot of combined arms stuff. They didn't do that, right? But still, it was organized as a conventional force. So they, need, they, they felt that really we need to have South Vietnam have its own conventional force to meet that threat. So early on, really, it was special forces who trained them in the kind of counter guerrilla kind of stuff. Meanwhile, when the U.S. Army then goes over there, kind of regular army there, 
they are there to train the South Vietnamese regular army, who has its own army, Air Force, Navy, Marines. They have their own special forces, airborne and stuff as well, too. So let me uh, ask Dr. Nance, as the, the former officer, what's the problem of training this army as a conventional army? The problem is, is that, this is why we were, I was kind of hitting on some of this infrastructure stuff, is there is a lot of, there are, there are a lot of prerequisites that have to happen before you can get in there and start blocking and tackling with mechanized or even large dismounted formations fighting conventionally. You have to think of where is the ammunition coming from? How is the ammunition getting from a factory all the way to a soldier? There are a lot of individual steps to loading that ammunition, putting it on a train, taking it to a port, putting it on a ship, taking it off of a ship, sorting it by type, putting it on a truck, getting it to a depot that is then eventually handed to a soldier. There, there, there are just all these steps that have to occur. Maintenance the same way. You know, every Think of how many parts are in your average F-150 truck. And then apply that to giving a truck that isn't made in that country. Where is that coming from? And a jungle that's going to eat it. Right. And it's going to... Now, the good news is the rubber. Uh, you know, I guess sure. you can make tires there. <laughs> uh, but the problem is, is that South Vietnam, through no fault of its own, or even North Vietnam, there aren't a lot of factories that are making war material. Yeah, maybe France's fault. Right. And, and the stuff we're giving them is not the equivalent of what the United States would fight with, yeah, even at the time. Like we're giving World them all stuff. the old yeah. kind of surplus type stuff. Well, and and kind of in the nitty gritty, you know, you were raised in the army, kind of unconventional warfare, and then you fought a counterinsurgency. So what's you know what's the on the ground problem of being trained? For well, that? the problem, of course, in, uh, is that there's a great. Uh, I have this story that I tell where uh, we'd uh, been in a fight and we killed a couple enemy. And we've got the bodies laid out there. And the Iraqi battalion commander with whom I'm serving with is looking at the guy and counting off their nationalities. And I'm looking at him going, how can you know this? And he kind of gives me this look of, how could I not? Yeah. And the idea being is, is that you talked about different cultures and societies between the North and the North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Somebody from Saigon immediately understands when they're talking to somebody from, say, Hanoi. They're going to hear it. Same as an Amer same as somebody from, uh, you know, our great from the great state of Texas will immediately tell when they're talking to somebody from New York. Yeah. May not be able to pinpoint it, but they know right. you ain't from around here. Right. Right. And an American, I can't, uh, but uh, one of our international officers that comes and visits here, they can't pick that out at first. Right. And that is a fundamental problem of, you know, how do you tell, how do you separate the sheep from the goats, right? Mm -hmm. you, and the answer is you don't right. as an American. Right. And there was also a divide between the Vietnamese officers and the, the, the rank and file. And that goes back again to the period of French colonialism and those who, who I mean, it's really, it's nepotism. It's not really a, a meritocracy by any means. So those individuals that get commands, that they come from a completely different world than the rank and file. And that has its own set of issues to it, the, the nepotism and then and the just cultural estrangement that they come from the quote-unquote Mandarin class, right, yeah. the kind of, they tended to be the more uh, well-educated elites who were leading people who were really just peasants. Which probably doesn't help when you're fighting a communist ideology. Right, which, right. Which 
you know, is all about class, right? Right. So we, we're in this period, kind of uh, transitional period between the Geneva Accords, 1954, 1955, and the the standing up of the National Liberation Front in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. So what else is happening, particularly in the South during that period? I know this is kind of when Diem gets into some problems. Right. I mean, he's doing his own kind of nation building thing. And, th- and this is where a lot of friction comes in between. He had his own vision for how to remake uh, the Republic of Vietnam, right, to to build it as a nation with its own kind of, you know, genuine homegrown identity, where the Americans was a very top-down, westernized view, and it constantly brought them in contact with one another. But for him, and this is where, you know, I think early historians were very, I think they should have been a little more sympathetic to uh, the the situation that ZM steps into because he, he essentially becomes head of state of a of a completely fractious society, right? Not only again he's part of a Catholic minority over a largely Buddhist society, but in the South because it was like the Western frontier in the United States, you had all these different groups, these these different sects, right? Mm-hmm. The Wahau, the Cao Dai, and the Bin Zuen. and some were like organized criminal organizations, other were these kind of syncretic religious cult-type organizations, and they all had their own militia. Uh, the French, essentially, to focus more on the Viet Minh, had essentially given them carte blanche to say, you don't fight us, we'll allow you to do your criminal activities and your other things down there. So when ZM comes in and declares himself as kind of head of state and he's looking to, to consolidate power, these groups don't want any part of it, right? So mm-hmm. they start actively rebelling against him. But he's able to crush it pretty quickly, pretty ruthlessly as well, too. But the other issue for him is when there was regroupment in 1954, not all the communists went north of the 17th parallel, right? You also had cells who stayed behind. They hid whatever weapons they could to kind of, and they were like the, the, the proto kind of cells of the nucleus of a future insurgency down the road. Aren't both Lay Zuan and Lay Duck Toe in the South at this time? Or did they go back and forth? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't think they remained in the South. But, but they they're had, both from the South, right? They, they're yeah. more, yeah, yeah, yes. They're more kind of, in that mid kind of autumn, the central yeah. portion, not from the yeah. Mekong Delta necessarily. So let's kind of take this in turn a little bit here. So he basically takes over a collection, an, an army without a whole lot of structure to it. Yes. He takes over a government without a lot of structure to it. And institutions are not there. And how, what, what comes first? Him consolidating power, building institutions, or the crushing of these rival institutions okay. Or is that a simultaneous event? It's it's really simultaneous. There's not much kind of nation building going on there. ZM does try to do something called uh, the Strategic Hamlet Program, which is these kind of fortified hamlets, if you will, right? But it's also trying to foster economic growth as well, too. Um, And the thing with as disruptive as the Franco-Vietnam War was, uh, Vietnam is still uh, exporting rice. It still grows enough food, right, particularly South Vietnam, to export it, if you will. Uh, and that's the other thing. There was a kind of a trade imbalance. North Vietnam had more uh, other natural resources, coal, tin, other things, more industrial centers. The South, however, was the rice basket, if you will. And for most of, uh, for a lot of its history, right, the South was providing the rice that the North would consume as well, too. But the economy is still kind of self-sufficient because it's a monoculture based upon, uh, you know, rice rice production. Can you expand on that? So what is the strategic, strategic Hamlet program? Right. And was that helpful to him or harmful? Um, how he implements it... Um, becomes a liability over the long term. But the idea of strategic hamlets was, you know, Mao made the, the famous uh, um, 
analogy that the, the gorilla is like a fish and the gorilla swims within the sea of the civilian population. So the idea was that you were going to separate right the uh, civilian population from the fish. And how do you do that? You create these artificial communities in which uh, people are given national identification cards, uh, entry and exit is carefully controlled, and then we're hoping to catch this uh, you know, to, to be able to root out the insurgents. Because at this point, it's not a super widespread. It's gaining momentum, but it's still nowhere what it becomes later on. And that's a technique used to great effect in parts of the Philippines yes. with the, uh, by the Americans in yes. the Philippine insurrection. Boer yes. War as well. Yeah, okay. these are essentially concentration camps. Really? We don't, yes. They're not death camps, but they're concentration camps. Right, right. Why is that a problem for the rice-growing peasants of the South? Uh, well, well, one reason is that um, it, it's not so... What, it separates them from their ancestral homelands, which is a big problem for a lot of them, um, because ancestor worship is a big part of the culture for, for Buddhists, and this essentially removes them from those areas to create them in a kind of in a new place. Um, another issue is that the civilian population was required or was was asked to um, pay for a lot of this stuff and provide the labor for these on their own. Um, and another issue uh, was that they just had to do too much too fast, right? Do it everywhere, uh, and they simply did not have the resources. So they spread all these things out thin. I mean, conceptually, it's a pretty decent idea, yes, flawed, but they might have been able to make it work. Um, but just the, far, the, the fact that they went too far too fast with these things uh, and the insurgency starts picking up, they start playing on these local grievances, part of the class issue which you referred to before, uh, a big thing is that ZM tries to do implement land reform, uh, it doesn't do it very well. Um, and this is always a propaganda uh, point for the communists, is about land reform. I mean, so, the reality is they take all that land back once they win power, right? right and that right, creates right. its own resentment. But at the time, that's one of the things that has, really helps fuel the NLF. Its growth is this promise of land. And So what's interesting is, is that the two examples we mentioned of where it had worked is both the American Army in the Philippines and the British Army in South Africa. Those are well-established militaries with organization, structure, logistics, how does ZM pull the strategic camera pro program off with nascent or non-existent yeah. all of that? Right. Well, again, he doesn't. It's not very effective. It, it had some positive impacts on a local level, but on a national level, it simply does not. Uh, again, it's part. You know, it's a mixture of different reasons. He does not have the resources to devote to it. He's still facing these multiple threats all the time. He's trying to consolidate. Uh, his power, make the build these bridges, if you will, between the Saigon government and the countryside and the rural population. So he's having a hard time with all these things. So let's talk about kind of one of the big problems that ZM faces, um, and that's the problem of corruption. Right. What's the issue with corruption? Not necessarily even what ZM is doing, which you know he and his his I guess it's his brother are kind of on the take the whole time. Yeah. But what, why is corruption such a problem at the low level? Um, well, you know, and I'm not really sure if it was a major problem, if this is, it, to, to me, everything I've read, it seems like a lot of conjecture, right, that it just, it angered the, the, the peasant population. And it probably did to a certain degree. Now, Zian himself, he wasn't so much on the take. It was a lot of his officers with nepotism. He was pretty much a straight shooter, right? He was just... Yeah, he, he was pretty much not doing that, but because of nepotism and the holdover from the French colonial system, a lot of the other officers simply were. Uh, it was just a way for Graf to make extra money. There was a lot of, you know, they weren't being well paid, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think the real issue for corruption, where I think it really, really mattered, was here in 
uh, the United States, right? So the corruption itself and corrupt officials, yes, it had an, an impact on uh, civilian population, right? Because you, they would see that, you know, these, these, these representatives of the government are essentially fleecing the people. They're stealing stuff. Arvin did not have a good relationship with them. They were... They would steal chicken and livestock and do all these things that would, you know, annoy the civilian population. Uh, but I think where it really mattered was with the United States. And I think, again, our expectations of um, tamping down that kind of stuff, I think, was probably unrealistic. But this is the thing that encourages a lot of um, U.S. Uh, uh, policymakers, right, to become very uncomfortable with ZM and how he's going about doing things. It's also his, his growing authoritarianism as well, too. In an effort to not only crush those sects, but then he launches something called the Denounce the Communist Campaign. Uh, he throws out a wide net and it tends to draw a lot of non-communists in there and create a lot of insurgents and people who are more sympathetic to that based upon his heavy-handed tactics. So this is basically Red Scare Saigon. Yeah, yes, pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, there's legitimate cause there, right? It's like right. even you know here in Red, Red Scare in the United States. Uh, it's just funny. I just saw Oppenheimer last night. I was trying to explain a lot of stuff to my wife, and I said this wasn't all made up, right? There was a genuine threat, and there were in fact communists who had infiltrated, right? Spies and everything, the highest levels right. of government in the Manhattan Project. So it wasn't all just fiction, right? Really it, paranoid it if really they aren't out to get you. <laughs> right. Uh, so right. South Vietnam is the same thing. There right. is a legitimate threat from the communists to his. But his reaction to that is not very smart. It's kind of the traditional kind of brute force way of crushing it. Yeah. Uh, and that generates a lot of so what are things unintended you, consequences. So one of the things you mentioned, and I'm actually going to ask Dr. Abel this too, because this is actually one of his specialties a little bit. But you mentioned government officials aren't well paid, particularly the military. Right. Well, that means that, so how was the government of Vietnam establishing a taxation system? How did it generate wealth? Because taxation and the collection of wealth, it's one of the pre prerequisites for a modern state system. Right. So between the two of you, can you talk me through, like, how does one actually build a modern, as we want to use the term, taxation system? I start over. <laughs> hey, generally, what the French did in their colonies was they relied entirely on local power brokers. So they would go in... And they would talk, like, like you mentioned, Dr. Columbus, they would talk to these local temple groups. They would talk to the local mandarins or the landowners. And they would basically run it like a feudal system. Uh, they would say, hey, you know, you've got this many people. Here's what you owe us every year. Figure it out. Yeah. So they not... didn't. And, and the French, uh, not until Algeria after Indochina, do the French try to create kind of a modern looking government where you do censuses and, you know, you actually have data. Um, so there, you know, there essentially is no modern French holdover in any of their colonies for anybody to take over. Which is a far cry from how France does taxation in the metropole. Yeah. And well, it, it used to be like that in the metropole. Uh, the difference is, you know, we look at the French often as kind of the, the, the standard bearers of rights around the world, um, going all the way back to their revolution. That's what they proclaim. The reality is many people from their former colonies can tell you is they don't do that in the colonies. They are just as repressive as, you know, the old Spanish were back in the 16th century. Um, and they really only care about the take. They care about what they're extracting and what kind of money they can make, not about the people who were there for the most part. So, so how does ZM handle this with basically there is no taxation structure other than... Right. Well, one of the things he does, and that, uh, again, makes him unpopular, is that he subverts the kind of the traditional 
um, village elections, because that's the whole thing. I mean, throughout most of Vietnam's history, uh, it's much like a, other portions of Asia. That, that the old saying, right, the emperor's writ stops at the village gates, right? And the idea is that, uh, you know, the emperor, when, when, when they needed, you know, uh, taxes, uh, you know, funding for the state or military forces, they would interact, right? Or they, they would impose themselves and require these things, whether they were draftees or money or a rice or whatever it might be in times of need. But otherwise, if not, they would essentially let villages run their, their own show. And that was the same thing. There was a long history of uh, Vietnamese villages electing their own officials to run the local thing. ZM subverts that by appointing uh, people from his government. Again, they're cronies. Uh, they, they're, they're mandarins. They don't have this kind of connection with the people, and that has its own kind of problems as well, too. So we've been focusing in large part on the, the Vietnamese side right. of this. Um, let's talk a little bit about what the Americans are doing during this period. So we have, I think it's a couple hundred army advisors in South Vietnam during the 50s. Right, yes, yeah. It grows from like 600 to 16,000, I think, under Kennedy. Yeah, so, so up until 1961, when Kennedy comes to office, it's right. relatively small. Right. But you've also got these cadres of people who are, they're civilians, mm -hmm. and they kind of go back and forth between college, recent college graduates, State Department, and journalism, right? right. So, so tell us about this, uh, like we don't have this in Korea. Right. So tell us about this group of people who come from America to Saigon and who kind of become the Vietnam intelligentsia. Um, you mean the, the American civilians that yeah, are working over yeah. there? Yeah, they're, they're essentially, you know, this was an effort early on to help South Vietnam build its institutions, right? The University of Michigan had, one of the things they were tasked with first was helping the South Vietnamese develop their own police force. They would hope that this would be enough to deal with kind of guerrillas and stuff at the local level. Um, they also, for the United States, you would have advisors who would go over there, civilian advisors, who would help them with, you know, part of modernization theory, right? Walt Ristow's kind of theory that the best way to, uh, so, you know, to, to inure, right, kind of peasant populations against the promises of communists, right, which is land redistribution, social justice, all these things, is to help them modernize, right, help them build their own institutions so they become self-sufficient, they can grow in wealth and self-govern themselves and show that this idea that, you know, that the Western, you know, develop of, of, you know, model of modernization is their ticket, if you will, to the modern world, to participating and become socially and economically kind of prosperous, if you will. So we have uh, the police program, right, to help them build their own police forces. We have agricultural experts who are over there, right, helping them grow uh, food. We have, uh, you know, people helping them with animal husbandry, fisheries, all kinds of things, helping them grow their kind of civic administration as well, too. Um, so that's the kind, that's the development part of uh, nation building, mm -hmm. right? That, and that's where we start, and that's what becomes the pacification program too. Is that part of it? Is yes, military. Right? So the idea is you can't have, you can't build civil institutions, right, under constant threat of attack. So what you have to do is uh, develop military forces to deal with that. Meanwhile, you are trying to develop those social, political, economic institutions so that the Vietnamese become self-sufficient and won't need your help anymore one day. And one of the things that comes along with this that we don't see in Korea is a lot of media people. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a group of writers and newspaper men and you know AP stringers who are all hanging out in Saigon. And one of the things that happens during the period of the late 50s into the 60s is America's paying attention, at least to some degree, to what's happening. Right. Especially as you mentioned, as ZM grows more repressive. Right. So how does the how does the press focus? 
on South Vietnam. How does that help to kind of color the conflict as, okay. it, as it grows? Right. Well, in the eyes of uh, American policymakers, some of the reporting, and this has been a, a point of, of debate within the historiography, right? Uh, some people have argued that a lot of the early press, uh, David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan, they were very unsympathetic to ZM, and they had these mm. unrealistic expectations about what he should be doing, right? That, be, that he shouldn't have been an authoritarian, and an autocrat, um, and then by doing so, right, they were reporting on only the bad things that were there. Uh, and this helped um, taint ZM's image, if you will, right, in the eyes of U.S. policymakers who were becoming increasingly uncomfortable with his uh, autocratic kind of rule. So early on, he was called the, our miracle man in Vietnam, right, under the Eisenhower administration. By the early 1960s, uh, there is serious doubt about this guy, and the press definitely plays a role. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily agree that, but they were definitely, you know, pretty harsh on what he was doing there. And there wasn't, you didn't have that kind of sympathetic press to balance things out. And some of the key players there, um, Fred Nolting, one of the first uh, ambassadors there, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge in particular does not like Xiam at all either. Mm -hmm. Like I said earlier, uh, Edward Lansdale is about the only guy on the ground in Vietnam who's putting uh, a good spin on this as well. So... Um, part of it was, yeah, ZM is legitimately doing things to draw negative press upon himself, but I think there is something there that uh, I don't think a lot of these journalists gave him the benefit of the doubt and really were sympathetic to the, the situation that he was in and what he had to do. So that increasingly will create a crisis of confidence in Washington in ZM. I think, although it doesn't explain everything, this guy was wonderful and the press just blew it all because they lied, that's overstating the case. But I think definitely the reporting shaped perceptions in Washington. This leads to a crisis of confidence in ZM. And eventually, after many coups that we kind of tamp down, we give the green light in 63 and he's killed. Well, it's not like he's, you know, doing other thing other than setting up a government and a military while fighting multifaceted civil war with no institutions. With <laughs> right, state, right, right. Easy. Well, uh, and, yeah. And massacring a lot of people. <laughs> right. And right. which, of course, gets to how do you how do you do that? You massacre a lot of folks. <laughs> but that brings up a question you um, kind of been playing with, which is the issue of governmental legitimacy. Okay. Where does it... Cause, and then we're talking about modern ideas, so legitimacy in most modern structures derives in some form from the people. Right. In communism, it's like it derives from, the, you know, the people have compelled, people combined the together through the party, right. where in America consent to the governed, all through that. How is Zim creating his legitimacy, or is that just something that he's, uh, a step that he's skipping over for right. now? He's trying to do it, but it's not really working very well at all. Right. I mean, and, and that's a great, you know, question and thing to bring up, too, because one of the things about the Viet Minh in, in when they were fighting the French, the Viet Minh, um, they didn't really distinguish themselves from many other nationalistic groups. And that's the other thing. It wasn't like, you know, although they're to offer, they have often been talked about as the only legitimate nationalist group. They were not. They were only one of many. And what happens is during the Japanese occupation, the Japanese uh, start confiscating rice, right, and hoarding it for the use of Japanese troops, which leads to a famine in 1945, uh, estimated between, I think, one and two million Vietnamese potentially die as a result of this famine. And this is an opportunity that Ho Chi Minh and Viet Minh see to, to, quote, unquote, liberate this rice from the Japanese who are increasingly weak in the summer of 1945 and distribute it. And they, that really raises their street credibility and their legitimacy in the eyes of the peasant population, right? Maybe not everywhere, right? But people saw them as providing, you know, 
real tangible benefits, right? Uh, where ZM never really has that. Again, he comes from this Mandarin class. Most of his government is from those people. There's no real connection there. These, these efforts to gain kind of legitimacy amongst the population isn't there. But this issue of legitimacy, it goes way past ZM as well, too. It's, a, it's always a, an issue for the South Vietnamese government. So ZM is basically uh, choosing the, uh, the old regime, European old regime approach of, I am in charge because I am in charge. Uh, essentially, he, he's still he's trying to do things, right? He's not trying to just, you know, he wasn't a puppet as the, the, the communist propaganda portrayed him of, as of the Americans, right? He was genuinely trying to do and was concerned with the welfare of the Vietnamese. I just don't think he, he was not able to really pull it off in a way. It's just, there was mm -hmm. just part of it was his personality, the way he was doing things, and other things was just conditions, I think, that were beyond his control. So let's walk forward a little bit into the conflict that our listeners are probably a little more familiar with. As we get into the 60s, a couple of key things change. Uh, one of those that you've, you've mentioned a couple of times, Kennedy comes into office in 1961, and then the uh, various groups uh, in the South opposed to the government are, are either are coalesced or coalesce into the National Liberation Front. So let's deal with the first thing first. How is Kennedy's view of this conflict different from Eisenhower? Okay. Um, I mean, not much. I would say Kennedy is, is more militant about how to approach this problem. Initially, Kennedy's concerned more with Laos, because Laos was the real flashpoint there. The, Laos and Cambodia also had civil wars uh, part left over from uh, you know the period of French colonialism, in which Laotians and Cambodians are fighting alongside the French against other groups, and they have mm -hmm. their own civil war. Cold War gets layered on the path at Laos, the Khmer Rouge, right? That kind of aspect of it as well too. Um, but Kennedy, I think he feels he obviously feels that Eisenhower is simply not doing enough, right? However, right by the time he assumes office, things have changed to a certain degree. Um, one thing about ZM, he's an autocrat and he's brutal. However, he does get a certain degree of control to that country. And this is one of the things in, in the North, right? Because the North's divided as well, too, right? The, the polar bear was split between hawks and doves, right? People like uh, Ho Chi Minh and Novin Jap, they're part of the moderate group. And they say, listen, you know, we didn't want to settle for half a loaf, but we were never going to get a whole loaf. So we compromised, yes. Um, and we're never going to lose sight of what we want to do, which is unify the country. But that's not, we can't do that right now. So what we want to do is a North first policy. Let's focus on the North. We'll develop our own institutions. We'll continue to grow our military, our economic institutions, our, 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 our political institutions, because now we have the backing of powerful friends, right, including China and the Soviet Union. So let's focus on the North, right? And this angers the more militant wing, Lei Zuan, Lei Ducto, and others, right, who they want to, they didn't, they feel that Ho Chi Minh sold out at Geneva, right? that he, he, we, we should have just kept pushing on for complete, for total ends, right? The goals of reunifying a country now, right? No compromising, no partition of the country. So this leads to bad blood between the two. And increasingly over time, Ho Chi Minh and Giap and the moderates, they get outmaneuvered in the Politburo. Um, and part of the reasons why they do is because in the South, ZM's hard-handed policies are, in fact, devastating those holdovers, right? Those people who stayed behind in the South and that denounced the communist campaign. Brutal, yes. Making a lot, you know, a lot of enemies, yes. But 
it's really having an impact on those cells that remain behind. This is what now forces the hand. Les Juan uh, and the hardliners gain ascendancy in the Politburo. And then in 1959, they pass something called Resolution 15, or I'm sorry, Resolution 9, which calls for, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, in 59, it's Resolution 15. They call for now armed struggle in the South. Resolution 9 is after Ziem is assassinated in 1963, and that is full press court before the Americans can get involved. Right, but um, so by the time Kennedy takes office, Resolution 15 is passed, right? Meaning the armed struggle in the South, no more of this North first policy. We're gonna start actively stepping up our, our, our guerrilla and revolutionary activities in the South. Uh, the following year, 1960s, when the National Liberation Front gets formed, uh, and it becomes a, a genuinely you know, insurgent organization. So by the time Kennedy comes into office, the, the National Liberation Front is growing in strength and, and its uh, uh, capabilities, right? And he has to act more forcefully than Eisenhower did. And that's why he steps up the advisory committee and other things as well. Too. So let's talk really quickly about what the National Liberation Front, or okay. sometimes colloquially called Viet Cong, let's okay. talk about what it is okay. and what it's not. Right. Um, well, what it is, it's, a, it's an amalgam of uh, communist and non-communist organizations, um, still directed from Hanoi, right? It is, not, it is partly homegrown and indigenous, yes, but never autonomous. It was always controlled by Hanoi. Um, it never had its own kind of freedom to act how it was. It took its marching orders. The strategy was set by Hanoi, uh, by the Politburo. Um, also, yes, it was a combination of... Um, communists and non-communists, and I think a lot of historians have made like, too much hay over that over the years, because it's really essentially a communist organization. Yeah. The only thing about the non-communists is that um, Ho Chi Minh, because he's, he's smart, right, knew what to do, is you form front organizations and you hide your Marxist bona fides, because you don't want to scare a lot of these other you know, nationalist organizations who uh, want to get rid of the French or don't like Xi'an, but are necessarily not down conducive with communists. So the National Liberation Front, uh, it's largely communist in nature, although uh, it does have non-communist elements. But the reason why those non-communist elements work so closely with them is simply for the fact that they never expected it. Once the, the National Liberation Front achieves what it wants to, like the Viet Minh, all those other nationalist groups, uh, are they, they get the crush, they get squashed. So let's talk about briefly what the National Liberation Front does, okay. right? We often think of it as insurgency as what we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. They're planting bombs, they're doing, you know, they might pop up and shoot at a base and then run away. Um, is that what the National Liberation Front is doing? Is it, is it doing more than that? Right. Uh, it, it's doing much more than that, right? Uh, this, this falls back to Vietnamese revolutionary uh, warfare, right, which um, two forms of struggle, right? It's a combination, it's a true synthesis of military and political effort at once, right? So they have this Daotron strategy, and it's part political struggle, they call it, and military struggle. The National Liberation Front does both, right? The Viet Cong, as they were pejoratively called, which means Vietnamese communists, they were part guerrillas. They had the armed struggle was a violence program, and that included main force conventional fighting. It included uh, you know, irregular guerrilla war as well too. It includes localized violence and coercion, such assassination. as assassination, kidnapping, just kind of strong arming local populations, re-education, all that kind of stuff uh, in at the local level. But they also did uh, political stuff as well too. This political Daotron. Uh, was part of it, and that was getting political messaging out. They had something called the Viet Cong Infrastructure, which was a shadow government which worked in the villages and hamlets in the South. Uh, and their program had was propagandized, like agitprop, if you will. It was propagandizing mm -hmm. the population, propagandizing the American public, 
uh, South Vietnamese officials, and of course the civilians as well as right. But much like the Taliban were doing in Afghanistan right. or the various and sundry groups in Iraq. So, I, and real quick, a, a point on that. At any given time, it sounds like what you're saying is that a member of the Viet Cong could be running in a local election, assassinating a local official, planting a bomb, spreading propaganda, and fighting as part of a regiment. Right. Right. Now, usually you had armed groups. They were a little bit separate, right? The political cadre oftentimes were devoted exclusively to political cadre. But I'm sure there was bleed over and they did multiple different things at different times. So let's take this now. We've been kind of setting this. We've been talking a lot about the Vietnamese side of things, which right. I think is actually the perfect way to approach this <laughs> right, right. in, in a war called the Vietnam War, right? right. Uh, but so where the, Amer the American forces are going over there, and let's take this in a couple steps, which is first off, how do we help? Right. You listed off a number of things, you know, help them grow rice, right. you know, bring bring them modernity, whatever that looks like in right. Vietnam, right? Um, and we also have to help them fight a civil war, and but we don't, as we discussed earlier, we don't know what the, that exactly looks like. Right. And we have to help them build government structures. Right. How do a bunch of, as I joke, a bunch of corn-fed uh, corn boys from Iowa... Right. A joke, just kind of joking, do that in Southeast Asia. Okay, well, they they got a lot of good ideas, but again, these are Western conceptions of what modernity is, one of the reasons why they clash a lot of times with the Vietnamese. Because um, again, I mean, whether it is in an Eastern context or Western context, right, growing crops and, and, and fishing and doing things with, with animals and stuff is, is kind of, you know, same thing, right? It's just, but there are... It's fairly universal. Oh, yeah, fairly universal, right? So I think there were definitely definite tangible elements of how Western, you know, whatever, modes of planting or equipment or fertilizers and those kinds of things are definitely going to give them an added boost as well, too. Uh, so that's part of it. But the problem with, you know, a lot of Western nation-building projects is we want to do it in our image, kind of cast our image on there, and that creates... Uh, problems with them. But if you look at the local level, there was a lot of good cooperation there, and a lot of Vietnamese seem to appreciate having advisors, be they military or civilian, at the local level helping them do these kinds of things. It was at the larger national level where things are, are problematic because that wasn't enough to sustain the economy. The, the, the South Vietnamese economy is really propped up by the United States, you know throughout the entire our involvement there through something called the commercial so, import program so. as is the north by the communist powers that's a not unimportant part of this too. yeah yeah absolutely but the way our model was is that we were just giving them all kinds of western stuff refrigerators and toasters and and you know tractors. like right tractors and stuff and they would use the money that they sold from that kind of stuff we were trying to impose kind of uh, you know, uh, c consumerism on them and then allow them to use the funds. But they were always reliant on our aid despite that and never got them self-sufficient. So we're, we're retarding that, is, if anything. We're seeing localized, often widespread localized, uh, but successes down at the lower level. Improving farming techniques, bringing maybe electricity, whatever. Medicine. Right. Medicine right. being a great example. But let's talk about that upper level. How does the U.S. build institutions in Vietnam? Let's say Did pro we? province and higher. Okay. Um, well, again, I, I think there was a, a degree of... Um, we, we did, right, once we get involved, particularly with ZM, later on governments, was to give them more 
to empower them to kind of do it themselves. Now, granted, they have a constitution. They put together their own kind of assembly, which is supposed to be, you know, it's, it's mirrored on Western kind of uh, democratic, you know, uh, practices, if you will. Uh, and they do start implementing those on their own over time. Um, you do have also over time, you do have some, you know, first rate administrators. There's a lot of good books or there's, I think, about two or three books which have come out recently which was written by, yes, they were the South Vietnamese elite, but individuals who worked within these various different ministries and stuff. And they were really smart people who knew a lot of good stuff. Now, let's draw a critical distinction here. Are these American ideas that the South Vietnamese are executing, or are these South Vietnamese ideas maybe with an American kind of helping on the sides, but them executing their own ideas? Um, It's pretty much the, the latter, if you will. Right, because the other thing is, the United States was—it's it, definitely imposing its will, but they—they they always had to watch how they would do it, because it always—they were fighting that image of being a neo-imperialist power. Right, they're simply replacing France with doing this stuff. But that's where the problem would come in, because we're giving them aid. We'd like you to do it this way, uh, but Ziem and then later leaders, uh, um, Thieu, right, the, the other, the second president, um, Wen Kaoki, right, these guys. They, they needed the money, they needed the aid, but they still very much wanted to do things on their own, and that created fiction, uh, friction a lot of times between them. Right? There was more land reform and other things over, over time, yeah. but... It so the, the, the other big piece that's happening throughout the 60s is, and, and we can leave aside the, the Nixon year of the 60s, right. so we're talking Kennedy-Johnson. Uh, Kennedy comes into office, if I remember right, there's around 1,000 advisors. When he leaves office in November of 1963, there's over 16,000. Yes, they're no yes. longer advising, they're fighting, right? right? And then we first, we have the first big battle. Uh, is it January of '63 at Opbok? I'm not sure if it's January, but it's, yeah, it's yeah. definitely in '63. It's early. Yeah. So by the time GM and Kennedy leave office, both in the same way, by the <laughs> right? And we have now major American forces on the ground. Uh, there's also, as you mentioned, the National Liberation Front has stood up. The the North Vietnamese Army is is pushing as well in various ways. Uh, so, so how does the American kind of approach change given all of the changes moving from Kennedy to Johnson? Okay. Uh, it doesn't change all that much. Um, it's just more of the same, essentially, right? Giving them aid, helping them try to stand up on their own. Uh, Kennedy dramatically does that, right? He not only increases advise, advisors, right, the number of advisors, he increases the money and the type of weaponry and everything that we're giving them. Like you said, some Americans are fighting now, particularly because they can't, operate some of the more advanced stuff, particularly helicopters and stuff. So we actually have U.S. pilots and stuff and some advisors who are actually engaged in combat because they were there at the time when, when fighting is taking place. Um, after ZM and Kennedy are assassinated, what happens is that um, South Vietnam starts deteriorating rapidly, right? Their uh, leadership is really poor. They bring in this military junta. Uh, like 12 Arvin generals to try to have military administration. Uh, They're not very good at their jobs. There's a lot of turnover over that. And as a result, there's a lot of chaos going on in South Vietnam. Uh, Hanoi sees this. They call for Resolution 9, which is a full court press, right, in the South, uh, to topple the regime quickly, right, because they can sense that weakness and all these poor leaders and stuff. Let's, you know, before the Americans can get involved. However, that stepped-up increase does, in fact, push Saigon's uh, the Saigon regime against the ropes, and this is what forces Johnson's hand now to introduce now combat forces, mm-hmm. right, to stem the bleeding, right, 
uh, roll back the communist tide, and then go back to helping the Saigon government establish control and build its institutions and stand on its own. So now over the next few years of the Johnson administration, basically going from late 63 to, to the peak year 68, now we have huge numbers of American forces, uh, over a half million. And we still have these civilian efforts. They're still ongoing. Yep. But now we have a massive military force doing what we would recognize from Iraq and Afghanistan as counterinsurgency. Right. So what does it look like on the ground now okay. for the average you know, soldier Marine? Okay. Uh, well, combat forces were, were not in populated areas. They were deliberately kept kind of in the hinterlands because they are really there. And this, is, this metaphor was used a lot of times too, a shield, right? The U.S. forces were there to be a shield for pacification, meaning they're going to bring all their military uh, strength, right? Firepower, mobility to fight those North Vietnamese conventional forces. Because that's another thing that forces America's hand, right? In 64, right? Yes, you have the Gulf of Tonkin. Yes, other things are going on where advisors and Americans are dying in increasing numbers. But it's really the infusion of North Vietnamese Army regulars in an attempt to do this knockout blow, right? Before America can intervene anymore, that kind of forces Johnson's hand. So for the combat forces, they're there in the kind of hinterlands to fight those particular forces. Which shows a degree of sophistication on Westmoreland's part that's often missed, which is he twigged to that idea that a guy from South Texas may not be able to identify a person from northern Vietnam. Right, right. And the history of the French, this is just going to look, look hard. We're going to play into all the communist propaganda of a neo-imperialist power and all that other stuff. So that's where they were, but yeah. the advisors were the ones that were in the villages and hamlets who were working closely with their counterparts. But it was really, when it came to that nation-building pacification stuff, the the social and economic and political development aspects of it. That was the Vietnamese show, right? They knew the language, they know the terrain, and plus it's not going to smack of that kind of stuff seeing a bunch of Americans running around there. So you did have that split difference. So uh, Dr. Nance mentioned General William Westmoreland, mm -hmm. who's the head of, the, of MACV, the main right. American um, organization. So what's Westmoreland's approach to this problem? He's, yeah. As you mentioned, he's got main force regulars. He's got right. these quasi, you know, guerrilla, but also main force in LF. And he's got pacification attached. So how's he, how's he looking at this? Okay. Um, he, he understands the war, right? He's been unfairly, I believe, pilloried, you know, in the history books for a long time, kind of scapegoated for this failed war, right? Um, and, and part of that, the characterization of him is that he was just some, you know, knuckle dragger who didn't get the political side of the war, wanted to fight it his way, uh, focused on, the, on our strengths and fighting the war that we wanted to fight, not the real war that was there at, at hand, which was largely political as well. But it was also largely military. So he understood this Daotron strategy, this really, this synthesis of political and military struggle or effort, if you will. And he makes the same, uh, 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 split two, if you will. He, he knows, right? The United States, our strength is to take care of the immediate threat, right? Which he saw was the North Vietnamese Army regulars. He makes this, this, this great metaphor is that South Vietnam is the equivalent of a house and it's under attack by two threats, right? One are the bully boys, right? Uh, bully boys are the North Vietnamese Army regulars, right? These big dudes with no necks and, 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 and crowbars, and they're, they're trying to tear this house down. Meanwhile, you have the National Liberation Front, the insurgency, including its political infrastructure, who are more like termites. They're also trying to tear the house down. They're both a threat, and if you let them both go, eventually that house is going to collapse. However, the more pressing threat and the one more suited to what we do, right, um, is the bully boys, right? So he focuses on that, but he never loses sight of that pacification effort. Granted, it doesn't get the attention that the main force war does, but I don't think you really could do that because that's the whole thing. You can't nation build unless 
you, you can't build these things, these institutions, unless security is provided first. So pacification, which was an unfortunate term borrowed from the French, it had a security and a development aspect to it. But given the nature of the conflict, the fact that there was always this hybrid threat from the communists going on, we focused more on the main force wars. Later on, after Tet, was when you, you have the luxury of giving more attention to those civil aspects of it. But that was always the, the dual thing of pacification. It's security, but it's also development. We're there to provide a shield behind which all that good stuff will, will, will occur. Which is what I want to focus on next, because right. we talked about the killing people and breaking things part of Vietnam quite a bit. But what I'd like to focus on is how successful were the civil institution okay. projects through the latter part of the 60s. Because we often talk about the Tet Offensive and the, and the massive battles that occurred there. Was it a success? Was it a failure? But all of that is entirely beside the point if South Vietnam can't build its institutions. Right. So what's going on there? Right. Well, during the early up until 67, the problem is, like so many other issues related to uh, the American War in Vietnam, is that there's no unity command over all of it. Right. Uh, uh, Johnson and McNamara are fighting their war their own way. Uh, the United States is on strategic defense. Anything Westmoreland wants to do, he has to, you know, run through uh, the the, the uh, commander in chief Pacific, right? U.S. Grant Sharp, which then goes to Washington. The same thing goes with this pacification effort and these efforts to build these institutions. Is that the military and the civilian sides are not working together, and it's only in 1967 when they develop civil operations. And at first, it's revolutionary development supports, later rural development support or cords, in which they appoint a civilian in equal equivalent as as Westmoreland an ambassador, right? to work on the civil side of it, and they actually work together, right? So they can't get their act together through 65, 66. Also, that's when the most pressing need to kind of crush this hybrid threat in the South is. But over time, it, you know, force has utility, and you do start seeing some progress, if you will. It's limited. It's overblown by uh, Johnson and McNamara and even Westmoreland, who say, oh, the end is coming into view and things are going great. We're making progress. That was the kind of drumbeat throughout 67. Light progress is happening. Right. <laughs> but there is, finally, after 67, you, you do see progress in these civil institutions. And after Tet, you see a lot of pretty good, pro you know, a, lo a lot more progress in that field as well, too. Right. But that's really because as a result of Tet, that insurgency is really banged up, and there's an opportunity now—a kind of a, 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 a quiescence or quietness, right—in uh, South Vietnam that allows them to focus more attention on that. So you sometimes read that there's a different approach taken by army units and marine units on the ground in Vietnam. Is there any truth to that? And if so, what is it? Uh, some is yes, yes and no, right? For the most part, the Marines fight just like the Army does, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's search and destroy uh, uh, large type operations. Uh, the one thing that the, that the Marines do uh, differently is something that came to be known as the Combined Action Program, uh, the Combined Action Platoon, excuse me, the CAP program, uh, which was to put, to break down this kind of pacification ever, effort to the squad level in which squads of Marines would go into these uh, villages to help them develop their own self-defense def forces to fight the lower end of the, the insurgent threat. Um, and it worked. It tended to be pretty effective. However, right, the argument was, well, you can't have a bunch of small units penny parceled around the countryside because if those big NVA units come through the area, they're just going to crush and overrun them. So it, it had, same thing, local success like a lot of other programs did in Vietnam, but writ large uh, nationwide, 
it didn't because the emphasis was still again on that main force threat as opposed to that. Got very few resources, was a success, but you couldn't really replicate it on a nationwide scale. But that was really the only difference. Other than that, uh, Marines fought in I-Corps much like the Army did in okay. other areas as well too. So let's uh, let's speed this towards its conclusion. You mentioned 68 is a year where a lot changes, right? Johnson yeah. announces he's not running and then Nixon comes in the next year. Um, the Tet Offensive happens basically throughout the year. Um, which essentially exterminates the National Liberation Front. Close to it, yes. And then that opens up space for these pacification efforts to work, but Nixon's Vietnamization is pulling troops out right. to the point where combat troops leave in 73. Right. So what happens as the war moves to its American end in 73? What What's happening to these efforts on the ground? Uh, this is something that uh, John Paul Van had classified, or what happens then is something that he called fast and thin pacification, right? Is the idea is that the South Vietnamese government and the Americans are trying to plant flags, the South Vietnamese flags, in as many places as possible as quickly as you can, right? So what's, what's the Platte River, right? A mile wide and an inch deep, right? Pacification is almost the same thing. Because to build, truly build strong institutions at the local level takes a long time. Mm -hmm. Right, But essentially what they're trying to do is establish control as quickly as they can, plant their flags in as many places as possible, expand Saigon's control out, which they do, right? And there's a lot of more areas on the map which the United States and South Vietnam say, point, see, that's where we, we have control of this area. Right? Mm -hmm. But as far as true development, it, it, it doesn't really take place. Well, These are very the, fragile institutions. It took the right? Vietnamese themselves another generation to even start that, right? You don't really see that till the late 80s. Uh, well, yeah, that, that's something different. But you do see some progress on the ground. Um, but what happens later on, due to the fact that Nixon is withdrawing forces at a regular basis regardless, um, that leads to other problems and compromises from the South Vietnamese government that it has to make. Right? Had we done something like that sooner, had we really initiated pacification sooner, I don't want to do a counterfactual, it would have turned out better <laughs> or different. However, the fact that we started it, at a time when America is withdrawing, again, compromises something in which, yes, progress is made, but it's so fragile due to the fast fact that American forces are leaving, and we just need to kind of rush it, if you will, and do things very quickly. So I'll ask you two concluding questions. One of them is, is the, the conclusion of a very controversial author named Mark Moyar. Yep. His argument is that ZM was it. It was okay. either ZM or nothing. Do you agree with that? Um, no, I don't. I don't agree with that. Simply for the fact that uh, I think other individuals later on showed themselves to be, I think, as competent, right, if you will, as ZM. Also problematic, whether it's Thieu or uh, or Key, right. These guys had their own issues. They didn't get along together as well either, right. There, I mean, so there were issues that were there in. Uh, South Vietnam, where some issues, where some leaders came to the top. So I don't think he was the only person. I think at the time, right, I think it was unfortunate with that coup, right, because definitely nobody was ready to step up, uh, you know, then. It was only later on by 1967 in which then they have a general assembly and elections are held and few gains control, but because the Americans are leaving, right, there are other problems as well, too. So later on, he himself has to resort to more kind of autocratic, kind of hard-handed things, suspension of civil liberties in the press and um, it just doesn't work out later on. So Okay, so second concluding question. I, I'd like both of you to weigh in on this. Dr. Clemens, Vietnam expert, Dr. Nance, uh, historian and, and veteran. Um, briefly, because it's a whole podcast if we talk at length about it. Yeah. What does the United States take away from these on-the-ground pacification efforts in Vietnam? Okay, so what I would argue is, is that oftentimes I think we took the wrong lessons away, at least from the military perspective. 
there's the assertion that the U.S. ran away from the lessons of uh, Vietnam and we didn't pay attention to counterinsurgency and coin. And I'm hard, that, I don't know if I fully buy that simply because a lot of the tactical lessons are only applicable in very specific circumstances. And we applied the, uh, many of the same lessons fairly rapidly. I was in a company-sized combat outpost in 2003 in Iraq. Uh, doing local area security patrols much the same as we would do later. The, I think the harder part is is that what we, the part that we didn't pull from this is the very political nature of this process, which is at the end of the day, success is a stable, legitimate, friendly local government to us, whether it be Iraqi, Afghan, or Vietnamese. And that took now, I think that people understood that and got that very quick, uh, eventually, and we uh, transferred power over to the Iraqis, but it took some time, and I think that we, people like, oh, we ran away from the lessons. I'm like, well, did we really? Because that's actually the problem we have to fix. Everything else is a supporting effort to that main effort. Which is arguably not, at least fully, the military's job. Right. And and the other problem is, is that, quite frankly, at a certain point, it also becomes exceptionally challenging because it's very hard for an American to tell an Iraqi, an Afghan, a Vietnamese, take your nationality, and tell them how to run their country. We can advise. We can coach. We can provide resources and coerce. But in the end of the day, it's... What is an insurgency? It's a uh, revolt against an established government. But the problem is, is that the, whose established government is being attacked? Insurgency. Uh, and that, in that case, it's the it's a, it's a Vietnamese <laughs> government, Iraqi government, an Afghan government. Now, these may be governments that we helped stand stand up. But at the end of the day, we're fighting someone else's insurgency, and that is challenging. And more challenging than simply fighting our own insurgency or fighting a conventional war. Yeah, I, I think yeah, you're absolutely spot on about that because the idea, and and this is an issue with I think from Vietnam all the way up through now is this nation building these projects. Uh, it's it's very paternalistic, right? And it's the very idea that we're somehow going to shape, we're going to change their values, right? And and they get converted into these moral crusades in which we can't tolerate authoritarianism. We can't tolerate um, corruption and these other things. Well, you're going to have to, right? Because these societies are obviously very resistant to that. That's how they operate oftentimes different, or I should say, they operate very differently than how the United States was, right? So I think we have to really understand that, that we can't impose culturally a lot of expectations based upon the West. And I don't know the West of the United States who it's fooling either as somehow our own government runs without these kinds of issues or problems. It's there, right? So I think a more real politic view of nation building is this is, is this in our interest or not? Are we willing to compromise on certain maybe expectations of moral or ethical purity if, if this is going to serve us uh, in the long run. I definitely think that's part of it. But also not forgetting that political aspect, um, Dr. Nance, like you said as well too, is that if you are going to go down this road again, you have to understand this is a long-term political commitment and you better make sure 
that you maintain that in the long haul, that the expectations are that this is going to take a long time to do. Not be able to make all these reforms, all these changes in a short amount of time, and you're going to come away with the outcome that you want it to be, right? Iraq is still, meh, but Afghanistan and Vietnam, we know, are abject failures, and that's the thing. Nation building at a time of war is, is, is a tall, if not impossible, order, right? And the, the political aspect is something that we just don't do well because honestly that's what broke in both of these things it might have worked i mean it worked in korea right yes mm -hmm. it's completely different set of situations it's a peninsula which had its nice own little mm -hmm. added benefits but honestly right that we were there for the long haul and it took a long time to get there um we're here uh the united states will was not there to stick it out we didn't stick it out we essentially abandoned both of those countries after we said you know what the, the politics of this is too much for us and we're not sticking Thank you very much. No, thank you. Pleasure. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.